Welcome to PWC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PWC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on January 23, 2019, Finally Final, the Section 965 Regs. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo, Mike Erse, Elizabeth Nelson, and Nini Duar, all PwC tax partners in our international tax services practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists of the tax return impact of Section 965 regulations and a discussion of some key changes to the rules and definitions. Have a listen. So we did get last week on January 15th some final regulations. Important, these were the first final regulations, um, major final regulations. There might have been some other small one that uh, came through that no one was tracking, but these are the ones everyone was looking for to be final. And they covered a lot of things. 303 pages, I think, or thereabout was, was the final count. Um, they covered earnings and profits, uh, aggregate cash, uh, foreign tax credits, um, rules related to affiliation and consolidation. Um, and importantly, uh, the regulations are affected back to the date of enactment. And if you recall, you look at the, the date of enactment, looks back to some measurement dates, which were even before the date of enactment, and have rules that look back even further when you're calculating the toll charge. So we have rules that are effective. Um, there wasn't really any big surprise in that. Uh, we've got a provision in the code that says that can be if a reg is finalized within 18 months, and this was definitely done within the 18-month period. June, about June 22nd would be that 18-month mark. So we have this out of the gate. We, we're going to learn a lot today about what's actually in the regulations and then maybe talk about uh, some of the insights we have from this. So moving uh, on, uh, Mike, could you take us through the tax return impact of the 965 regs? I will. So uh, we put this slide together so, um, so companies could think about some of the major provisions in these regulations and whether that might make you think that you should amend your 2017 return. This is, of course, for calendar companies. Um, one of the big changes was that consolidated cash is measured now uh, at a single U.S. shareholder level, and that's going to make a difference in the toll charge tax rate for many companies. And we think that's probably going to be favorable, but you really have to test it to see how it affects you. Um, another positive change was uh, the proposed regulations had a basis shifting election that was intended to help people access PTI. And we're going to go through an example on this. Um, but that provision caused a lot of people to trigger gain if they applied it because it had to be done across the board on all your entities. This new election is more selective and it's, it's going to be helpful, I think, to many companies uh, to move some basis to the companies that have PTI that you want to access. Um, the third thing, again, this was favorable, was that for certain companies that have commodities that they treat as inventory property, uh, that's accepted from the cash definition. So that's very helpful, and there's some other uh, related uh, things with commodities. Uh, expansion of payments eligible for double county relief. This, this one is going to cause you to have to do some work. Um, previously, specified payments between related parties were measured when they had different measurement dates for cash. Uh, so 
for, for earnings, sorry. And so now this rule is expanded, and it doesn't matter if a company is measuring its accumulated earnings on November 2nd and the recipient is on November 2nd, that's also going to be a specified payment. So more things could be specified payments than they were under the proposed reg. So again, you're going to have to see how that affects you. Um, on window period dividends, and window period to me means November 2nd to December 31st, during that window period, uh, these regulations allow you to opt out of the anti-abuse rule, which turn those payments off. So you could actually regard the payments so that the recipient of the dividend actually has the earnings. And so you're going to, again, want to check to see whether it's favorable for you to make uh, that election. And these last two points, um, I think, apply to pretty much the whole country. Um, I would say that based on last year's provisions for calendar companies uh, versus where you are today, your EMP data is probably a lot better and you have a lot more information. So what you've been using as your uh, data inputs for your 30 years of EMP is probably much more accurate and it might be beneficial to amend um, or you might need to amend because it was, you know, you understated your tax. Uh, and then lastly, folks would have been filing foreign tax returns all year for the 17 year. And uh, now that you know the actual tax is paid, your pools are going to be more correct in computing your 960 credit. So there's lots of components here to think about uh, in deciding whether to amend your, 90, your, your 2017 return. Okay, thanks, Mike. Um, Nini, what were some of the uh, other changes to the rules and definitions? Thanks, Mike. So before we get into the some of the specific pr provisions that um, Mike Gross was just talking about, um, here are some of the highlights of the changes to the um, general rules and definitions. So the first one on the pro rata share rule. So in the, in the proposed regulations, the pro rata share is determined as of the last day of the last taxable year of the SF, of the specified foreign corporation. And so the, the final regulations basically um, provide that to take into account in the case where the, the specified foreign corporations actually cease to exist um, before the ends of its taxable year, then the, the pro rata share determination should be made as of the the last day of the last taxable year on which the, the SFC was a CFC. So, so there's a change there, and that's consistent with the, the way um, the, the, the Section 951 would work. The, the second point about the pro rata share rule that is changed is around um, the allocation uh, in the case where there are multiple classes of stock. And when the guilty Rex package came, proposed Rex package came out. Um, that was a specific role around the, the allocation in the case where the, the, the common stock has no liquidating uh, value. So um, in the proposed 965 regs, the, the allocation of the deficit um, is essentially um, being done only to the common stock, but in the final regs, um, the, the, there is uh, there is a change to that to make it consistent with uh, essentially what is in the guilty regs package to say that um, the allocation when there's no liquidating value in the common stock, uh, you would have to look at um, other classes. Um, the next point on the post-measurement date taxes, um, the final regs are actually uh, 
maintain what was in the, the proposed regs, which is if um, the, the, the foreign corporation accrued the taxes um, post-November 2nd, but before December 31st, then the tax can be prorated back to the, the, the E&P calculation as of uh, November 2nd. Um, and, and the requirement for, for, for that proration rule to apply is that the tax has to be accrued by December 31st and it has to be accrued in the U.S. taxable year of the, of the foreign corporation that includes November 2nd. So there's some comments asking for, for the proration rules to apply to taxes that are paid um, beyond December 31st so that it can apply to you know, non-calendar year. Uh, companies, um, as well as the, the, the request to have it applied um, regardless of whether the, the, the taxes were accrued in the U.S. tax year that includes November 2nd, and those are denied. So basically, the, the proration rule continues to apply only for calendar year CFCs and, and uh, shareholder. Um, the, the third item on this point on the, the 965B PTI. So 965B PTI would be the, the PTI that is created in the, the positive E&P entity that is essentially uh, offset by the deficit. And, and before the final regs, there was a question of whether that E&P could be, uh, that amount could be treated as um, PTI for, for purposes of determining the uh, applying Section 1248D, so this is a sort of a, a, a clear or development, good development to say that the final regs basically just provide that uh, the, the 965B PTI also counts as uh, an inclusion under 961, and therefore uh, can be uh, included as PTI in in uh, for for 1248D purposes. Elizabeth, I want to I want to just. Go back to really what we have with the 965 final regs. It was a longer journey, uh, one with a lot more history than the other provisions because we had three notices. Mm -hmm. um, we had a lot of public statements along the way, a lot of discussions, a lot of comment letters went in. We had a set of proposed regulations come out. And now, again, this is the first uh, set of final regulations. So when we are looking at the rest of the guidance that's going to be coming for all the other ones where we just have proposed regs right now or we don't even have the proposed regs yet for FDII and 245A and some others where we're kind of waiting. Um, what's the lesson we're going to take from here? Were, were these rules an improvement upon the proposed regs? You know, what did Treasury really do from a sort of a big picture perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of favorable uh, provisions that were included in the final regs for taxpayers, like the one U.S. shareholder approach for cash position, which we'll talk about later, and the basis shift election being, um, you know, widened in terms of being able to adopt a specific amount that shifts and being able to choose the entity that the basis shifts from. So there were favorable provisions that were put into the final regs. There were also, though, a lot of comments, as you noted, um, to the proposed regs and that they declined to adopt. And so I think some taxpayers will be, uh, you know, not as happy perhaps with the final regulations despite the, the favorable provisions that were put into the final regulations. Well, I think it's, it's always tough when you don't get what you ask for. Exactly. Um, that's a lesson you learn as a child. Uh, you, you don't get it, you're not happy, right? But, <laughs> True. Um, and, and I think what, what Treasury did in the regulations um, they, they tried to do at least is to explain why. 
and the for most yeah. of them, they, they came up with it. Now, you, we may not have agreed with their explanation, um, but we were able to kind of take from it where their thinking was. And you did list a number of examples, and we could probably sit here and list uh, eight, nine, ten of them where there are some improvements. Mm -hmm. um, are there any, any major areas where you're concerned that it might be worse or anything like that? I, I, I do think, um, and we'll talk about this later, the, the disregard rule um, in terms of the application of that. I think we people need to recompute their 965 amounts and see what the scope of that is when they look to what specified payments could be disregarded or they can elect not to disregard under the rules and see where their 965 uh, amount ends up being after they apply that rule. So some of the changes, I'm not sure we know the full effect of it. Right. It, it may not necessarily be bad. We just right. we just don't know and taxpayers right. will just have to run through to, right. to figure out the scope yeah. of the rule. You know, when you really look at these rules, there are changes and changes that affect, the, you know, what is falling on the return. Right. So numbers presumably are moving around for most taxpayers and some either favorably or unfavorably. Okay, so moving, moving on uh, with our aggregate foreign cash position discussion. Um, Elizabeth, could you take us through the aggregate foreign uh, cash position? Sure. A modification. So this was a, a fair bit of the preamble was devoted to uh, reciting all of the comments they received um, to ask for exceptions to cash position, um, which some of which we included on the slide: publicly traded stock, uh, certain publicly traded stock, cash earmarked for foreign acquisitions, liquid cash where you're holding it in a fiduciary capacity, perhaps, or in a um, in a trust, um, cash related to. PTI or PTEP that's associated with the 956 inclusion. Those are all items that were requested as exceptions to cash position, and um, those weren't adopted. They did adopt, however, a commodities exception. So uh, what was added to the cash position provisions was an exception for commodities that are held as inventory or supplies, and that's defined under 1221 and then the related hedging transactions. However, that exception doesn't apply for dealers and traders. Um, in looking at that language and that exception for dealers and traders, it's not clear how far that applies. So that's something that taxpayers need to look at closely when they're looking at whether they fall under that commodities exception. Um, other things, as I said, there was a lot of uh, Comments that came with respect to exceptions that were requested that weren't granted to cash position, but in 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 the whole, the the rules regarding uh, cash position that were in the proposed regs uh, remained in terms of items that were identified as cash position. So it was consistent. Um, they said in the preamble with the statutory language, they did make um, similar comments as to the proposed reg preamble with respect to notional cash pools and their in terms of applying the intercompany provision that would eliminate intercompany debt. Um, that is to be decided, you know, on a cash, on a facts and circumstances basis, really looking at the obligations um, under the notional cash pool agreements and, and to make that determination as to whether that intercompany exception applies on a case-by-case -case basis. The one um, item that I think was a big change to the cash position um, calculations was the application of a one U.S. shareholder rule with respect to all of the, all of dash three, all of the cash position calculations. It had been, um, it had been applied to the intercompany debt provision in a notice, notice 2018-78, 
They extended the one U.S. shareholder rule um, before or after the proposed regs were issued, but before the final regs to calculation of what intercompany debt is eliminated under that rule, but it didn't generally apply to aggregate foreign cash position calculations, and now it does in the final regulations, which, as Mike noted, I think that's a favorable rule uh, generally for most taxpayers because the prior rule where you were calculating aggregate foreign cash position and comparing your aggregate of your toll charge year and your um, average of your prior two years on a U.S. shareholder by U.S. shareholder basis really got you the highest possible aggregate foreign cash position. And so this calcul calculation of that amount on a one U.S. shareholder basis, looking at the consolidated group, I think it's going to be a favorable um, change um, to the aggregate foreign cash position for most taxpayers. And then finally, there was a clarification with respect to the application of the second double count rule. So if you have not intercompany debt, but you have other items that could be double counted and for which you can provide um, a statement indicating why it's double counted, those items don't have to be double counted between the two uh, specified foreign corporations on the same date. So you can have uh, specified foreign corporations with different U.S. tax year ends that still have items that are double counted, and so they clarified that. So, you know, cash had a lot of controversy around it because it did go farther than people thought at first. It's not just cash. It became marketable securities. It became commodities. It became all these things that were tradable. And so that meant if you had a company that had uh, a pig farm in Poland, uh, they had actually a commodity there, and that was taxed as cash, and that was a much higher rate, so it was a big deal. And, you know, I'm sort of surprised. There's a, there's a commodity exchange for everything. In fact, even if you didn't have the pigs, but you actually had the bacon, there's a commodity exchange for bacon. I was like, oh my gosh. And eggs. Right, right. <laughs> so a lot of people were picked up, and, and this is intended to sort of carve some of that out. And I think the point you made is um, I think that's what they intended to do, but we've got to focus specifically on the language of the regulation. Um, right. You know, what do they give us and, and where does it apply? But it is going to change the numbers, hopefully, for a number of taxpayers. Right, because I, I think the intent there where, where it is inventory or supplies, yeah, like right. when you're producing a product that includes that commodity, that, that is intended to be excluded. Right. Unfortunately, banks and financial other financial institutions, insurance companies and stuff still and get the bad answer with the cash they had to have off there. offshore. So here we're just looking at an example of how the one U.S. shareholder approach for calculating overall aggregate foreign cash position can be favorable. So we have on the top table there is the one U.S. shareholder approach. Um, and so there we've got four specified foreign corporations and we're aggregating those numbers in the column off to the far right to then determine um, which amount is the higher of the two and is taken as aggregate foreign cash position. And so we look at the total there um, of 500 for the average of the prior two years and then 550 for the toll charge year and the higher of those is 550. So that's the aggregate foreign cash position for the consolidated group. If we look at the bottom chart, that was on a U.S. shareholder by U.S. shareholder basis. So three out of the four specified foreign corporations in this example were owned by one U.S. shareholder, and so that comparison and the determination of aggregate foreign cash position was done U.S. shareholder by U.S. shareholder. So we see that the higher of the two amounts is 500 for USP, and then for U.S. sub that held the other specified foreign corporation, it was 100. So for a total of 600 
aggregate foreign cash position that then gets prorated out to the consolidated group members under those rules that were in the proposed regs versus 550 that gets prorated out under the consolidated group um, cash rules um, under the final regulation. So here it's a favorable answer, and I would expect for many taxpayers uh, they'll have this kind of result. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the speakers. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.